Welcome to the Age Reversing Blueprint Podcast, where we discuss tools and tips to help you reverse your age naturally. It is mimicking what we can achieve yeah, with high-intensity type exercise. The metabolic crisis that develops actually occurs with, with high-intensity type exercise. The caveat here is it, requ it requires high-intensity. Right. And so especially for elite athletes, that is a, that is a huge cost. And they have to dip so deep into their um, uh, into their stores, into their resources, and then which requires a lot of recovery to actually then adapt to that said stimulus. When we're doing light intensity work with BFR, we don't dip into their to their resources quite as deeply, and therefore their recovery is so much faster. So then they can go for the next training session feeling that much better. Or, or not even having to recover much at all. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of our podcast, where we have a, an amazing guest today, Sten Stray Gunderson. He's a leader in the blood flow restriction area. He's got a master's in science from the University of Texas, Austin, where he conducted several studies centered around blood flow restriction and as it relates to the cardiovascular system. He continued his academic and research pursuits at the University of Texas in Austin, where he's obtained his doctorate in exercise physiology and focused on vascular responses to hypoxia in older adults. He's also a BFR master trainer and has worked with uh, the ROI Performance Center, where he prescribed BFR blood flow restriction protocols and methodologies for clients of all ages and lifestyles. Sten has applied BFR in his own work with Olympians, elite military personnel, and now he is a postdoctoral fellow in the sports science lab at the University of South Carolina, where he performs research, teaches cardiovascular physiology, and investigates a wide range of sports-related topics, including blood flow restriction, human cognition, ergogenic aids, and more. In addition, he continues his role as the B Strong uh, at B Strong, where he's providing patient education and other content in an effort to expand and use the understanding of blood flow restriction, continuing the work of his father to provi provide a robust, efficient, and feasible method for all walks of life to gain the benefits of exercise. So, Stan, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. It's great. Yeah, well, you did it all. I mean, the 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 kudos goes to you. So I always like to ask uh, our guests, especially if we're going to be talking about their area of expertise, in this case, blood flow restriction and how that might relate to longevity, health optimization, and even having some age reversal biometrics improve because of it. Tell us how you got into this area, Sten. Yeah, well, it started uh, with a relatively personal kind of relationship with my dad um, for a long, long time. He had overseen a lot of my training. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he was uh, sort of the live high, train low methodology was his, sort of his brainchild, uh, he and Ben Levine. So um, back in the early to late 90s, uh, throughout the 90s, he developed um, and did research on the on the idea of living high at altitude, um, but maintaining your your output. Um, in this case, it was for runners um, by training at sea level um, or close to it at low altitude. Um, this this spurred a lot of uh, current uh, practices and strategies from particularly endurance um, athletes to you to either live at high altitudes and train at low altitudes or live in um, high altitude tents um, where you simulate by reducing the amount or increasing the amount of nitrogen in the air. Um, and sleeping for 12 to 14 hours in there. 
Um, that had sort of bled into um, a long history of working with uh, Olympic athletes and military personnel. Um, anyway, I was very inspired uh, by him as a kid and, and I kind of always wanted to be like dad when I grew up. Uh, but I was also uh, a very uh, committed and dedicated athlete, youth athlete um, that culminated in a, in a, a D1 soccer career um, at Dartmouth. Um, tried to bounce around a few teams after that in the USL, uh, ended up getting injured and uh, had a grade three tear of my MCL. You know, and before that, I'd been using blood flow restriction in my training to, to augment um, some of those training adaptations for soccer. Had a lot of success with that really was was fascinated by the fact that we could restrict blood flow and improve performance with these things. Um, but it wasn't until I got injured where I was just sort of blown away by the capacity of blood flow restriction to not only maintain and actually improve my strength and endurance, but also accelerate my healing. Um, I was, I, I had, a, like I said, I had a grade three tear of my MCL, um, sort of on the threshold of perhaps needing surgery, perhaps not. Uh, I elected to not have surgery and and just uh, use an aggressive rehab protocol um, supervised by my dad at the time. And uh, so we were doing two or even three uh, uh, sessions of BFR per day um, to really uh, augment and, and accelerate the anabolic milieu or an anabolic environment to promote healing um, in the context of getting some Alter-G anti-gravity treadmill walking in there, um, daily stretching, really forcing uh, uh, my knee to adapt and, and, and recover. Um, and so what would have taken about three months to get back to playing capacity, I was able to get back in uh, about seven weeks where I was functional um, and about eight or nine weeks where I was, you know, at, at uh, you know, for lack of a better term, race pace or actually uh, game game ready to actually play. Um, so cut it, cut it down by about, you know, half to, to, to a third of what the normal time to, to play return to play would, would have been. So that was really the, the kind of aha moment. Um, I ended up, uh, getting so fascinated and so in the weeds with this stuff that I decided to pursue uh, a master's, um, in exercise physiology in general. And really that expanded my interest in, in exercise and, and really the underlying physiology behind exercise. Uh, but also into the the physiology behind blood flow restriction, as it as a, at the time it was really a, a burgeoning um, area of study and a very fascinating thing to to look into. So that's kind of the 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 long spiel of how I got interested in, in blood flow restriction. It really started from a personal sort of anecdotal standpoint, but then really dug into the research um, and you know sort of the rest is history. No, that's awesome. I'm excited to pick your brain on this. So for the listener who may not have heard of this before. Uh, what what exactly is blood flow restriction and what is it doing and how do you do it? Yeah, uh, and actually on that note, I, I, it's it's funny uh, in in recent years the popularity has really accelerated. Um, I would say especially in the last year to two years, um, particularly in the PT world, the physical therapy world, um, there essentially every clinic that I know about is at least using it in some capacity. Um, but really, blood flow restriction is uh, restricting blood flow, and that can kind of take several different forms. Um, what we what we talk about with Be Strong is really a restriction of venous flow. So we have obviously our, our arterial flow, which is bringing oxygenated blood from the heart into the systemic um, circulation to be fed to tissues, whether that's organs or skeletal muscle during exercise. And then we have the veins, which are sort of on the other side of things. They're typically what you see as the blue in all those diagrams. Um, and that blue sort of represents the deoxygenated content uh, within the veins. Um, so what's special about the veins is 
And that's sort of different than the arteries is that they have these one-way valves that prevent any backflow of blood um, back towards uh, the capillaries uh, within, the, within the veins. Um, and so when you contract a muscle, you're actually contracting and squeezing the veins. Um, but instead of going back down towards the muscle, it, everything is pushed back towards the heart. And so the idea is, you know, during normal exercise, we're using this skeletal muscle pump to maintain venous return or how much blood is coming back to the heart through our veins. Um, and simply the, the kind of goal of BFR is to simply put a little bit of an inhibition on that, on that function so that you have a reduced or restricted amount of venous blood coming back to the heart. Um, and this is just enough to disrupt the normally finely tuned regulation of blood flow to and from the muscle to induce a great disturbance in homeostasis. And that disturbance in homeostasis is essentially the fundamental uh, stimulus for adaptation, um, whether that's systemic or local um, to that muscle. And, uh, you know, just along the same thread, there are also other forms of BFR where you are going up to a limb occlusion pressure or arterial occlusion pressure, and then backing off anywhere from 40 to 80% of that value. Um, by doing that, you're in this case, restricting both arterial flow into the muscle and venous flow out. Um, and so you're kind of working on both ends and we can talk about maybe the, the subtleties or nuances between those two different forms, but that's kind of what has emerged. Um, I will say the original form of BFR, Katsu, um, that developed in Japan was really focused on restricting the venous side um, and this um, AOP or arterial occlusion pressure approach really manifested um, through the last uh, 10, 10 to 15 years within the research um, and has really picked up steam, especially um, in, in PT clinics um, and, and, and uh, similar sorts of uh, uh, communities. <laughs> right, right. Applications and who, who's doing them. So what yes. we're preparing for this this talk here today, Stan, I, I wanted to ask you about how is it mechanically applied such that the venous restriction is being being uh tested or being stressed versus the arterial restriction what's the difference yeah so so the the primary difference comes down to the elasticity of a given cuff um so with a with a wide rigid cuff or a rigid cuff in general and this is what you typically see with a with a blood pressure cuff if anybody's gone into the doctor's office and had their blood pressure blood pressure taken they're using a uh, a blood pressure cuff which is non-elastic and it and it's important that is non-elastic so that it's able to occlude the artery. Um, when we occlude the artery, we can completely stop flow. And by doing this, we're able to um, then uh, listen for a pulse. Once we hear once we hear that um, pulse start to emerge, um, we can then develop or um, determine your blood pressure. Um, that 120 over 80 is is representative of. Uh, essentially, the 120 represents the pressure that's exerted by the, the band um, to not occlude anymore. And then that 80 represents the diastolic blood pressure or the, the pressure that there's no more turbulent flow in that, in that artery. So when we're talking about um, that sort of BFR, we're um, going up to any given pressure. Uh, it's going to be kind of person-specific, um, and it's going to... Uh, at least to some degree, restrict that arterial flow. Um, now, with the venous side of things, um, you know, it's important to mention that during regular exercise, 
one of the limits to output is is return of blood back to the heart um, from the muscles that are active. And so um, this sort of normally happens with exercise. Uh, I think the best example is sort of uh, like a 400 meter run. If anybody's run those, by the end, your you know your brain is is screaming at your muscles to try to finish and keep your form, but it's just very, very difficult to maintain that, that output. And part of what's happening, um, among other things, is um, essentially a lack of, of proper blood flow in order to maintain that output. Um, and so this is sort of the environment that we're trying to mimic when we use blood flow restriction. Got you. So just to, to clarify, then the difference between uh, applying a venous blood flow restriction and having a mixed would be in the elasticity of the cuff. Correct. And the main difference, the reason why that, that it can be is that the veins are much more com easily compressible um, than the arteries. So the arteries have some very thick, smooth muscle that surrounds them that is just more restrictive to, to actually collapsing. Um, and so it requires a much less, much lower pressure to restrict the veins or, or temporarily occlude the veins than it does to occlude the arteries. Um, and anybody can kind of try this on themselves. You know, when you when you're we're told to take pulse, we can put pressure on that on that given artery, and we can see that the pulse is maintained. Um, conversely, if you look at your superficial veins, you can actually collapse them fairly easily, um, and you will not feel feel a pulse in there. So that's kind of like a, a practical example of of how the elasticity is so important for maintaining arterial flow, but it can limit the venous outflow. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, and then in preparing for today, and I heard your father talk about the term oh, metabolic so. crisis. Um, yes. and, and so I'm assuming, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, when you're able to alter or modulate the return, even though it's not going to go in reverse because of the bi-directional flow, that is changing enough of the intricacies of of mediators and communicators and chemicals and gases such that it creates a metabolic crisis? Is, is that how he intended to use the term? I wasn't sure. Is that correct or not? Yeah, I, I think it's a very specific term to what's going on in the muscle. So as we are contracting muscle, uh, metabolic byproducts are produced. And normally in a, in a healthy person with no issues in a, at a sub-maximal exercise intensity, we're able to clear out these metabolites um, out of the muscle, bring them through the veins, um, and, and, you know, through various mechanisms, primarily breathing out through the lungs, we're able to offload some of these, uh, metabolites. A lot of the metabolites are also reshuttled into either the muscle or the liver. Um, there's various processes that happen, but these metabolites that are produced, um, in particular create an acidic environment and also are associated with a hypoxic environment in the muscle. And this metabolic crisis that occurs normally occurs during maximal exercise or maximal effort. And by, by reducing the ability of the muscle to clear out those metabolic byproducts, you have a, you have, now you have a disruption imbalance in the equation. So we're producing the metabolic byproducts with rev, relatively low intensity type exercise. And by restricting how much that is cleared, you have a buildup that is normally only seen with more high intensity type exercise. So there's this, this coming back to the, this very uh, commonly used phrase, this disturbance in homeostasis occurs, um, and our body really, really does not like that. And so this is a major stimulus. This metabolic crisis leads to a disturbance in homeostasis, which 
uh, elicits a, a robust adapt adaptive response. Right. No, that's great explanation. And I, you know, it was talking to you before we started in my past life, I had a exercise physiology degree. So I, I have a bunch of questions, but I was sure. a trainer for many years as well. And so is that also synonymous or similar of the specific adaptation to impose demands, but the imposed demands are a lot less intense to achieve the same results? Is is that an accurate statement? Yes. And what I would kind of maybe not correct, but edit slightly is that the effort is the, the maximal effort or the perceived effort is critical so that that still needs to be high. But what we're able to do is make the absolute workload less to achieve that state. Um, and this is particularly important for people who either can't or won't exercise um, and for athletes who otherwise need to have either a lot of volume or a very, very high intensity to achieve that state. Um, and so sort of on both ends of the spectrum, it provides a nice way to get to that state of, of adaptability, essentially, of, of essentially making the body plastic to, to those stimuli. Um, and, you know, hypoxia is a big part of that. Um, but yes, it, it, essentially what you're doing is you're mimicking what we can achieve normally with very high intensity type exercise with relatively low intensity. Right, right. And I'm always amazed then in terms of who comes up with this idea, you know, like, let's yeah. do some restriction and, and that will help uh, release growth hormone and, and that will be anabolic and we'll still be able to achieve that really per high perceived load for the body to adapt. Uh, I, I guess the question has to do with the term hypoxia. So mm -hmm. hypoxia is um, maybe you can explain it from, from your background and how it's used from BFR. Um, but from what I was showing you earlier in terms of if you're not moving iron out of tissues because you don't have bioavailable copper, that's going to cause your body to not respire at the cellular level effectively. And that's going to create some excitatory neurotransmitters, fight or flight stuff. And, and that can create a cascade of inflammatory responses, which which isn't so great. And making things worse, I tell people all the time, as best as you can, if you address the metabolic side of things and get your minerals balanced, if you're under stress all the time and you're having difficult times with, with, with respiring at the cellular level because we're in a pseudo-hypoxic stage because of stress, yeah. how is it that with blood flow restriction, hypoxia is actually used in a favorable way, if that makes, do you understand the question? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think this comes down to a um, sort of an overarching point of uh, the poison is in the dose, right? The dose makes the poison, um, you know, particularly with exercise, exercise is an extremely stressful, stressed state. Um, and the key with exercise is that we're not doing it all the time. Um, so there is, there has to be a, uh, a stressor, a stimulus, and then there has to be enough time for recovery to actually adapt to said stimulus, right? And so it's these chronic periods of time or these chronic hypoxia that results in pathologies and dysfunction, but doses, particularly um, due to exercise or, or intermittent hypoxia or altitude exposure, doses of these things are actually uh, stimuli for uh, uh, proper function and healthy function, and more importantly, just adaptation to said stimulus. But we have to have that period of recovery to be able to adapt to that environment. Right, right. So, so the hormetic response 
in, in small, yeah. small. Okay. All right. So let's talk about it then in terms of um, best practices. I ended up getting one a while ago um, when, okay. you know, Carrie, who said has been so helpful on the Q&As. Yes. Um, I bought it. I have to admit, you know, I bought it maybe over a year ago and it just kind of sat there, but I brought it out and I started using it. And, um, I, you know, I want to be able to get the best uh, out of it. And with the patients that I work with that are exhausted and tired and burnt out, a lot of the times they just don't have the energy to make the energy, right? It's like, yeah, it's yeah. like that um, conundrum of you're not going to get experience if you've never had a job, but how do you get a job if you've never had experience, right? So um, I, I guess what are the best practices in terms of using it and what are the studies showing um, given that um, you can achieve that perceived load, what are we seeing in terms of responses? Yeah, so I'll kind of take your question backwards, but, um, you know, to address the people who are sort of too tired to exercise, um, I think we've all felt like that to some extent, but I think the, the situation you're talking about is sort of this daily um, fatigue and, and, and not feeling like you can do anything. And what I would say to the, so a practical sort of solution for, for those sorts of folks is just to do five minutes, give yourself five minutes of, of uh, even, even single limb exercise where you're just doing bicep curls or just doing tricep extensions, or even just sitting in your seat with leg bands on and doing some leg extensions. Um, even doing a very, that small amount, especially in the context of someone who is untrained, can have pretty profound benefits. Um, so I, I would say do not under, us, underestimate the power of even just a few minutes of, of, of rigorous, or even with the, with the bands on, you can do low relatively or relatively high intensity while absolute low intensity type work. Um, you know, as far as the research is concerned, what's really, what's really has started a lot of buzz about things is that we're able to elicit adaptations using a light intensity exercise with BFR that are similar to what we achieve with out BFR doing high intensity type work. So, you know, put, putting that in layman terms, doing things like high weight or high intensity type exercise is was normally required to elicit increases in muscle size or increases in VO2 max or incre increases in cardiac function. And now we've come to this place where if we restrict blood flow while doing light intensity exercise, whether that's walking or, you know, this, this looks different for uh, different folks, you know, elite athletes are, are their light intensity is would other would to a lot of people be very, very difficult or very high intensity. But for someone who is, you know, um, just getting their daily exercise, walking their dog, they can put these bands on and actually elicit some positive adaptation, increase in muscle size and potentially increase in VO2 max. So um, that is kind of what the research is saying. What's, what's particularly interesting about the research is um, not only are we getting increases in muscle mass, um, increases in muscle strength, but doing those walking exercises, which would normally only be affecting, you know, endothelial function and, and therefore the aerobic side of things, the VO2 max side of things, we're seeing increases in muscle size from those more aerobic type activities, um, which is really profound. The other thing is just by the mechanism of how it works, um, it targets both type one and type two fibers. So just Normally, trivial exercise, light intensity exercise, requires type one uh, fiber recruitment, the slow twitch fibers. Um, but with BFR, what we're doing is we're using those pr primarily those type one fibers during that initial set, maybe halfway through the second set, 
then we start tapping into those type two fibers, which are the most responsive um, uh, or most adaptable to increase muscle size and strength. Um, and it's typically what people target when they're doing high load resistance training. Um, and so you're really, in my opinion, you're getting the best of both worlds um, by using blood flow restriction in concert with other, other forms of training. No, it's, it's great. And so as far as some of like the, the why, like, you know, why, mm -hmm. why has it been, why does it do that? I guess that will be the lay, layman's question. Why is it that mm -hmm. if we restrict blood flow and we create somewhat of a metabolic chaos and we don't allow mm -hmm. the full return of venous flow to be get, to expel that we can get the benefit of as if we're doing high intensity lifting and train um, this type this part of the muscle and you know just as an aside when we talk about longevity forced exploratory volume is is a biomarker for longevity hand strength is a biomarker for longevity um, also VO2 max is a, a biomarker for longevity so all of these things can be utilized for biomarkers for longevity. But I guess the question from a layman's person is why would it do that? Why, why would it have such a profound effect? Yeah, I think, well, two-part answer. I think um, there's still much to be discovered exactly why that this is happening. And there may be some additional, you know, epigenetic factors. Maybe you're turning on certain transcription factors that are responsible for a wide variety of, um, you know, healthy regulation of genes. Um, but also just from a uh, more practical standpoint, it is mimicking what we can achieve yeah, with high intensity type exercise. Um, so I may have gotten ahead of myself with that kind of 400 meter track example, um, but the metabolic crisis that develops actually occurs with, with high intensity type exercise. The caveat here is it, requ it requires high intensity. Right. And so especially for elite athletes, that is that is a huge cost. And they have to dip so deep into their um, uh, into their stores, into their resources, and then which requires a lot of recovery to actually then adapt to that said stimulus. When we're doing light intensity work with BFR, we don't dip into their to their resources quite as deeply, and therefore their recovery is so much faster. So then they can go for the next training session feeling that much better. Or, or not even having to re recover much at all. Um, you know, for the, for the average person, doing this three days a week um, can actually elicit some really profound effects. And it really comes down to mimicking what we can achieve normally with high intensity type exercise. You know, and, and if, you know, kind of getting into the weeds, this is associated with hypoxia within the muscle. This is associated with um, uh, acidity and acidic environment within the muscle. Again, temporarily, these things, if they're chronic, they're not good. Um, it stimulates uh, part of that hypoxia stimulus is actually to promote myocardial, mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, and it, it actually helps improve the health of mitochondria that are currently in there. And so um, all of these things that are normally associated with high intensity type exercise, which is normally very hard to achieve and requires a, a, a comes at a large cost to recovery, we can do very frequently and therefore regulate all the beneficial adaptations that we can get from exercise um, by all these different sort of stimuli and their, and their downstream effects. All right. So today's podcast is brought to you by 
B-Strong blood flow restriction devices. And you can see I have these B-Strong blood flow devices on my arms and you can't see my legs, but you can put them on your legs. They're like a tourniquet. And like we're talking about in this podcast, when you restrict the, the pressure of the venous blood flow back to the heart, you're creating a, a metabolic environment that helps to stimulate growth without the intensity that you need to stimulate growth when you're tired, exhausted, and burnt out. Now, you might be thinking, I don't want growth, but we're talking about mitochondria regenerating or mitogenesis. And that's important for energy production, removal of waste products, um, keeping your lean weight, being able to be strong and vibrant, and really helping you turn back the clocks of time so that you are aging gracefully. And if you're interested in saving a lot of money, Sten has given me a great discount of Rosen, be strong 20 all one word rosen be strong 20 wherever you're watching this video i'll make sure i have the link and the discount code below and get yourself these be strong bands to be able to improve your strength your vitality and ultimately your age of quality living let's get back to the video yeah no that's awesome it's almost like it, it the analogy i i don't come up with crazy analogies but i almost see I like it. one of those team meetings where they go to the wilderness and they do all these different things and you're only as fast as your weakest link so they're all huddled together having to cross the finish line um in this hypoxic uh high uh repetition or low weight and ability to create that those changes is you call off the herd right you kill the the weakened mitochondria and it only becomes stronger I'm, i'm curious to know because obviously there's a nitric oxide component to it maybe you can get us sure. into a little bit and also sure. the car the, the 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 carbon dioxide i'm curious to know about your insight with that um because from what i t- teach i look at it as if you're exhausted and tired um you're not combining the food you eat and the air you breathe to produce atp but you're also not producing h2o and you're not also producing co2 and low co2 is a good indicator that your 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 PDH enzyme, the pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme, is inhibited, and mm-hmm. it's causing your pyruvate to turn into lactic or lactate or lactic acid, and 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 depleting carbon dioxide. So, may, how does that work in terms of nitric oxide, carbon dioxide, and and getting into a little bit of, of the weeds there? No, that's all. That's great. Um... You know, to start with nitric oxide. So one of the things that happens with any form of exercise is when we go to actually begin exercising, we start producing metabolites, which lead to vasodilation. Um, This vasodilation also leads to increased blood flow. And that increased blood flow is associated with increased what we call sheer stress or um, the fluid moving, the blood fluid moving across through the artery. When we have an increase in that flow, we we increase the shear stress placed on the endothelium, which is the the inner layer of all it lines all of our arteries and blood vessels. When we have an increase in that shear stress, signals the endothelium to release nitric oxide into the smooth muscle, which then causes an opening of that artery. Okay, so by promoting just simply by promoting vasodilation and promoting blood flow into a given area we're acutely and transiently increasing nitric oxide, but that also stimulates a more uh, chronic adaptation of increased endothelial nitric oxide synthase. 
the enzyme that produces nitric oxide so that when we're not in an exercise situation, we just have higher amounts of nitric oxide that are that is able to do a variety of, of processes. Um, you know, uh, there's a famous uh, researcher uh, by the name of Ignaro who, is, who has made a, a life around nitric oxide. So we could, you know, I could tell you the million things that nitric oxide can do. And it, it really is a, a very interesting molecule. It's a neurotransmitter. Um, it, it's an antiviral molecule. Um, it's a very, very interesting molecule in and of itself. Um, but in the context of blood flow restriction and in, in, in blood flow, its primary role is a vasodilator. And when we vasodilate arteries, when we vasodilate arterioles, this promotes blood flow. And when we promote blood flow, this brings nutrients, um, oxygen into areas that require it. Um, and so it's, it's fundamentally um, the molecule that it allows for all of our tissues to um, be regulated in terms of um, specific factors that are turning certain genes on and off. Um, but it keeps literally keeps tissues alive by perfusing it with blood. Um, so that's that's one sort of avenue um, that we can talk about with blood flow restriction and nitric oxide. You know, the other thing, and, and before we kind of, maybe it's a nice transition into the CO2 discussion, when we breathe through our nose, we actually have, we actually stimulate endothelial, endothelial nitric oxides. I'll call them ENOS from now on. ENOS in our, in our uh, sinuses, and that produces more nitric oxide, which vasodilates the uh, blood vessels in and around our respiratory system. Um, and so, this breathing through your nose um, actually promotes um, enhanced blood flow as well. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would say I know less about sort of the CO2, low CO2 and that sort of thing. You know, it's funny, we always, um, you know, at least in, when we talk about sort of the hypoxia research, um, I, I've studied intermittent hypoxia, which is basically we keep it isocapnic. So that means no, no change in CO2. We're not having people hold their breath per se. Um, but there are studies where they do like rebreathing studies where you're really shooting up CO2. Um, and actually it may, it may interest some of your viewers to, to hear, to know that the trigger to breathe and increase ventilation is not necessarily a drop in oxygen. It's actually a rise in CO2. Um, as you, as you probably well know, we have chemoreceptors, um, which are responding to, uh, levels of CO2 in the blood that initiate the increase in ventilation and respiration. Um, so, you know, I, I and actually, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about, um, this low CO2 state. Um, typically we think of chronic high CO2. Um, now this is excessive levels of CO2, right. Uh, being sort of a, a, a detrimental effect, um, in particular with sleep apnea patients, when we have uh, long periods of high CO2, this can increase blood pressure and lead to a, a number of, a number of pathologies, um, but I could also see, you know, coming back to this idea of homeostasis, there's a homeostatic balance of CO2 and oxygen that we need to maintain. So, you know, going too high is not a good thing, but also going too low is also not a good thing. Right. I, and, I, and I think that's exactly it. I think you're by creating that hypoxic state and being able to um, get the benefits of the nitric oxide release you're harnessing CO2, let's just put it that way. Right. And that's helping the mitogenesis. But just as an aside, in the, the pyramid that I showed you, um, we look at um, NO, NOS2, NOS3, so ENOS and INOS. Okay. And what I find very commonly is a pattern of people have uh, polymorphisms in INOS upregulation. So INOS is inducible. I believe, and and you're going to have that more for the pathogens, 
right? Okay. So if you're if you're under stress and you have infections or exposures and you have the polymorphism, it upregulates the demand of your INOS system um, at the expense of suppressing the ENOS. So it's a cell oh, danger okay. response. It's saying, hey, we're not really concerned about using this nutrient for blood flow per se, perfusion. We're more for immune signaling, more mm. for killing. And, 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 and then once that's done, we can go back to here. But the challenge with that is, is that the perfect storm patients that I see, not only do they have the INOS upregulation challenges. I mean, again, these are just, per, these are, um, these are increased likelihoods. They're not foregone right, conclusions, right. right? And then when you look at their ENOS and they're downregulated, so they're going to be a per, and then event, and if they have issues with BH4, which is biopterin, which makes the nitric oxide, yeah. then they Go could backwards. be in an excessive state of not recycling that. And then like you said, that nitric oxide becomes uncoupled and when that right. happens, you're making peroxynitrite. So that's a long way of saying um, nitric oxide is a very important compound um, that if you don't train through exercise and contraction, and in this case, blood flow restriction, um, you're like anything going to be weakened for the times when you need it and, right. and vice versa. When you train it, what, what I actually believe is happening um, is you're making that nitric oxide endogenously by your own body, by being able to create a redox balance of NAD plus to be available to make the nitric oxide. Sorry to get in the Amazing. weeds listeners, but ultimately I did that to show off for um, Sten. And if that made sense <laughs> at all, I don't know. Hopefully it, it made a lot of sense. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and, and you just clicked a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of things just clicked in my brain when you, when, as you said that, and, you know, we can't forget about neuronal NOS either. Uh, nitric oxide has a huge function in the brain, um, both for vasodilating blood vessels in the brain, um, but also a host of other um, defense mechanisms as well. And, you know, just to your point, I think that immune response, um, that inducible NOS is very important. You know, nitric oxide promotes blood flow, which could theoretically help with inf uh, symptoms of, of inflammation. Um, when we have this immune response with inducible nitric oxide, not only are we for or you know sacrificing enos, but we're also doing that in the context of more inflammation. So having this having you know the necessity of nos the nos system, let's say, focus more on you know getting rid of that infection in the context of inflammation just leads into as you mentioned before sort of this positive feedback where it just gets into a worse and worse situation unless we can pull out of it. And I think, I think a way to sort of pull out of that is by using exercise in that way to help your own endogenous production of these things. And I think BFR is just a really good and, and practical and feasible way to do that um, consistently. And, you know, I think a really special thing about BFR is that you're able to get a, a systemic uh, metabolic crisis, if you will, in just five minutes, if you really, if you really um, go for it. Um, and if you do it, like uh, make it a, a 10 to 15 minute daily practice, you're really upregulating all these things that are, that are beneficial um, to, to what you just pointed out yourself.
Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that um, I think is is really important, I don't know if there's studies on this, but as I get older, I've been neurotic and OCD and trained myself to oblivion and crashed and burned. And it, there is the 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 dose or the poisons in the dose. Right. And I believe now as you get older, you just don't have the capacity to train like you did before, nor would it be beneficial. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when by by training you're releasing too much cortisol. And then that cortisol is very catabolic. And then it's creating more uh, problems with, with your, with your energy systems. So I'm wondering, is there studies out mm -hmm. there, Sten, that show that because you can achieve that perceived exertion and get the hypertrophic or anabolic changes or mitogenesis with blood flow restriction that you don't actually create a, the same kind of rise in cortisol that you would with those high intensity CrossFit type workouts? Do you know if there's studies that show about that at all? There, there have been some studies where they looked at uh, salivary cortisol and testosterone um, acutely after BFR. Um, honestly, it's, it's a little bit uh, all over the place. Some, some have shown increases some have shown less of an increase than we would expect um so there may be some uh, methodological methodological issues there uh excuse me um but i think the jury's still a little bit out on that i think uh there's also and you would know better than i but and maybe so maybe you can help me understand but there is also this prolonged cortisol release so you know i think transient increases in cortisol can actually be beneficial um, it's just, this is sort of the cost that I'm talking about that, it, that is only accompanied with high intensity, um, uh, exercise is that you have multiple days of inflammation, maybe elevate like dysregulation of, of certain hormone pathways, H HPA, uh, axis dis dysfunction and things like that, that, you know, are a result of the exercise, even though the exercise is good, um, you know, there's a certain cost. So I think BFR is a way to, uh, avoid some of that cost. And I think more work, more work needs to be done, but I, I don't really have a doubt that there are some that positive responses to getting to that place that would normally be associated with high intensity with relatively light type exercise. Um, so I think it plays into the, the sort of the recovery side of things. Um, and, and I'm sure I'm sure that hormones have a, a huge part to play in that recovery. Process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it just like you said, the research design hasn't been set up properly. But I think if you went into it wanting to know, pound for pound, are you releasing mm -hmm. less cortisol by doing blood flow restriction, but getting the benefits that you would have otherwise needed to get with high intensity cortisol spiking exercises, you'll see that you'll get that benefit. So um, quick question I had for you. I, I heard some research and I, I, it was it intrigued me from a physiology standpoint, um, but he was talking about how concentric contraction is is mitochondrial building and eccentric contraction mm -hmm. is mitochondrial depleting. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but um, where does blood flow restriction come in? Because I would almost think of, is there a benefit of the isometric component to blood flow restriction and or do you know about the 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 concentric eccentric impact on on mitochondria mitochondrial function at all? Yeah, you know, I I haven't really heard of the the mitochondrial um, response eccentric versus concentric. Although, just you know, and I might I may be misunderstanding, but I think I think it kind of makes intuitive sense when you're doing eccentric type training you're at a much higher risk of coming back to the idea of risk. This doesn't happen at, with every single muscle fiber, but you're much higher risk of, of 
disrupting the membrane of a given fiber when you're doing the eccentrics, right? So what we're talking about for those to understand, the eccentric portion would be the lowering portion. So what I'm trying to do is I'm constricting, con contracting my muscle as I'm lengthening those fibers. And so we can kind of think of the myosin heads and actin heads being pulled apart as we're lengthening that fiber. Concentric is the upward motion of that. And typically we don't see a whole lot of damage to the membrane when we do concentric based exercise. Um, and so the, 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 maybe the impact of the mitochondria come from the actual rupture of the muscle membranes that are maybe leaking out some contents within there, which, which may, um, you know, lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. It's also, by the way, the most, um, inflammatory type exercise and requires the most recovery after performing it. Um, however, having said that it, eccentric training definitely has a place in, 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 in exercise training and, and training, um, protocols because, um, it's a great way to build strength. So, but again, you know, coming back to this idea of recovery, it requires a lot more recovery. There's a greater cost to that sort of, sort of exercise. Um, and so, you know, particularly people who are, don't want to be a lot very sore. If they do concentric based exercise with BFR, the chances of getting sore are very, very low. Um, and it can be very, very beneficial. I, I, I don't want to speak too much on the mitochondrial side of things. Cause I just, I hadn't heard that. And but that's very interesting. And it, it makes intuitive sense to me. Um, now to, to discuss the isometric side of things, I think, um, very, very fascinating area. Um, uh, and I don't think we've done, there's been enough research on isometric contractions. We did, um, a study at UT where we looked at different yoga poses, which incorporate a lot of isometric holds. And, um, which was, which, what was interesting is we hypothesized that with bands on, you would have an elevated blood pressure response during these, these isometric holds, right? Um, we did not see a difference than, than without the bands, which was, which was interesting. Um, having said that during an isometric hold, that is one way to get a, a major reduction in venous return, right? You're not letting the blood escape. Um, and in this way, you're, you're also building strength. Um, you know, you can hold an isometric, you can hold a weight isometrically, um, uh, a lot, you can hold a, an isometric position much with much more weight than you could do a concentric motion, let's say. So like you can hold a, a hundred pound weight at, at the top right here, uh, in an isometric hold, but maybe you can't actually lift that up. So, um, there's some different techniques to be used with isometric contractions. Um, I love, uh, isometric holds with, with, with the bands on, I think it really augments the, um, the effect of the bands and really what's going on internally within the muscle and a lack of clearance of those waste products. Um, so I, I love doing isometric holds with, with BFR. Right, right. So no, thank you for sharing. So my, from, as you described it, my, my understanding is eccentric can, can still be hyper, hyper, uh, I guess, stimulating for, for muscle growth, hyper, hypertrophy. Right, right. Um, but you're, you're breaking down the mitochondria versus concentrically, you can have hypertrophy by, and have mitogenesis. And I think that's some of those um, biomarkers is um, of of lean mass or the number of muscle per per you know lean body weight per per total body weight and hand strength is based on mitogenesis. So I I I heard that, and when I heard him that this influencer talking about it, it's like, well, it's not like you're going to go to the gym if you're not using BFR and just do concentric pushes. I mean, how are you going to do not eccentric stuff? But at the same time, eccentric is part of the 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 complex of the movement and if you're healthy otherwise healthy 
um, you're not going to be concerned about shredding your mitochondria because you're doing eccentrics. I think the net gain of the concentric, the isometric, the eccentric is is going to be pro longevity anyways. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely. And and I think, yeah, to, to clarify, eccentric training is is a really useful tool to build strength and hypertrophy. Um, it just requires a little bit of recovery. So, so you have to kind of consider that in the, in your interperson or your, your specific person context. Um, you know, but I think eccentric training is actually a very, very good form of training. Um, you know, and, and so one, one way that we do this with athletes, for example, is, um, and we did, we have different phases of training, um, you know, uh, Cal Beats has done a great job of outlining sort of the uh, eccentric, concentric amortization sort of phases of running, for example. Um, and so you have like a phase that lasts weeks to months of eccentric phase training where you're really breaking the body down, but building, really building a strong base, strength base. And then you, you move to more towards concentric type movements where your focus is more on the concentric portion of that exercise or that movement. Um, and so what this might look like in the gym is when you're doing that eccentric based training, you're really focusing on lowering the weight slowly and then maybe even dropping the weight, you know, having it back up, holding it here and just going through that. Those are your sort of your reps where conversely, if you're using more of a concentric based um, exercise protocol, you're you're actually just, for example, let's say you're doing a deadlift, you're just picking it up and then dropping it at the top of the lift. So you can kind of get away with just doing the concentric um, um, motion of that, of that, or, uh, portion of that movement. Um, but in, in reality, you're, uh, stimulating increases in strength. And that in particular is a great central nervous system stimulus to maintain strength. It's actually amazing. Um, uh, it's very, very hard to grow muscle. Um, it's very, very easy to lose muscle, but it's, it's also relatively easy to maintain. Um, so once you get to a certain point, um, you can maintain with as little as, as three times, um, per week per muscle group. Of, of a given exercise and you'll maintain that strength. Um, right. Yeah. No, I, I like the idea of the blood flow restriction, especially for my demographic. They're tired, they're exhausted, but they need to move. They need to contract um, with the ability to get better benefits without having to go as intense and recovering quicker. And I do believe that if studies were done, it wouldn't be as taxing to them court from a cortisol standpoint either, Great, which yeah. ultimately you're getting you're having your cake and eating it too, I believe with that, you know, in that yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah and and I, I would say just as a recommendation for those sorts of folks, um, even just putting the bands on and going again through some very light type exercise, what you'll notice is, oh, I already have the bands on it. You have, you kind of have this mental sort of epiphany, like, oh, I, I can actually do exercise. You know, I already have the bands on. I've only been, I was only, I only told myself to do it for two minutes, but now I actually feel pretty good. You get an endorphin rush. Um, you, you, there's actually been some evidence to show you get endo endo opiate release or endo opiate release, which helps, um, uh, reduce pain sensitivity. So all of a sudden you're feeling good. Um, and then it can actually motivate you to maybe do, uh, two more exercises or maybe two more exercises on top of that. And so it really helps put you in a state where you're more motivated overall and not feeling that fatigue as much. Yeah. And I think too, like one of the things that you, when you use the actual, restriction um you, you feel a, a better neuronal connection to that muscle 
yeah. right? Meaning like you can actually feel that muscle contracting because your mind is making that connection. It was funny. I was showing a friend of mine the other day. You can feel free to use this as your tagline if you want. Okay. Um, but I was showing my friend the other day this, and I was explaining how it increases nitric oxide, this, that, and the other. And he's not a, a, a scientific guy. And he says, oh, so it's pretty much Viagra for the muscles, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah, I think so. It is Viagra for the muscles. Yeah, so, well, uh, it improves endothelial function, and uh, one of the most important functions of the endothelium is for is to increase blood flow. Um, and so, actually, you know, exercise in general can help promote sexual function, but I think this has a huge capacity to to do that as well. Um, right. And and to your on your point about the sort of mind muscle connection, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, we were talking about it the other day here in the department, but, you know, bro science is sort of, sometimes it's hit or miss, right? Sometimes it's just completely out there and, um, you know, not a whole lot of evidence behind it, but sometimes it's really ahead of the curve. Um, and this mind-muscle connection is interesting because, um, you know, bringing, bringing awareness to a certain area, whether you're doing that through that muscle burn um, or otherwise, helps you recruit more muscle. And they've shown some EMG um, that you, studies using EMG, they look, they look at for the same intensity of exercise for the same load, we're seeing a little bit higher muscle activity, um, uh, electrical activity in the muscle, um, with BFR versus not. Um, so there may be something literally to more nervous system output into that muscle and the feedback that you're getting as well. Um, yeah. That could yeah. I mean, I think it would be accelerated. I mean, I was a trainer for many years and yeah. you're right. It would take a while. Like I heard you talking about those initial strength gains are just the coordinating synergistic muscles and the neural connections. But if you can accelerate that too, because you're establishing a like, okay, now like I used to teach my clients when I would train, like, think about like your muscles rolling into a ball and you're not just like mm -hmm. aimlessly lifting these weights, but you're connecting the brain right. to connect, to make that into a ball and hold that. The quicker you do that, the stronger your muscles will be, the stronger you'll be, the, the quicker responses you'll have. And I think that Again, the, the BFR yeah. probably increases that real quick because I got to run. I do have a hard stop. I okay. want to make sure yeah, I good. ask you the maybe we do a part two, but I always like sure. to ask our guests um, and I'll make sure they have links to the to the Be Strong training site so they can see yeah. where the where to get this and all the all the research you guys are doing. Um, what would you tell the younger self, Stan, that, you know, now that will would have helped or gotten you back uh, or a quicker, longer um, more optimized health, um, as, as for the things that you might not have known then? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I would, I would say, you know, I'm 30 years old, so I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot lately with this sort of transition. And, uh, one of the things is just to embrace discomfort, um, embrace, embrace the suffering a little bit. Um, it's amazing. You know, you know, I think BFR is a decent way to understand this it is, is it, it's really, you need to experience discomfort. You need to stress the system in order to properly adapt. And within that, there's a time for recovery. There's, there's a necessity for recovery to, to actually adapt to that stimulus, but, um, just embrace the, the pain a little bit. Um, and it's, it's funny, uh, you don't really remember a lot of those days where, um, you're not doing much or, you know, you're watching TV or your couch potato, those, those days kind of, kind of all blend together in a lot of ways, but the days where you experience discomfort and maybe it was for ultimately for a good cause or, or something positive in your life, you remember those days. And, you know, at the end of, at the end of the day, uh, you know, your, your history is, is what you can remember is, is uh, the, the accumulation of all those memories. So literally 
it, it makes me uh, kind of come to the conclusion that uh, the more that you kind of suffer in a good, in you know, towards a positive, you know, endless suffering, pointless suffering is no good. But if you're suffering for a good cause or towards a goal, um, your life will be more fulfilled and you will have a, a longer life as you remember it. Um, and so uh, that's what I would say is just kind of embrace that suffering and um, and uh, keep moving forward. Those are so good words. And that's, you know, embrace the suck. I think that with today's day and age, with the, you know, with dopamine being there all the time, cell phones, notifications, text messages, Amazon Prime, 24-hour food availability, that we're never uncomfortable and, and right. we don't embrace the suck. And you're right, the hormetic stress of something that your body's not used to, by definition, isn't supposed to be pleasant. Um, right. but it's in the dose. And if you do too much, it will create challenges. But if you don't do enough, it will create challenges. And you have to put yourself under a load, which applies to the physio physiological response of, of, of the muscle. Same thing in our life. So great, great exactly. advice. Um, I appreciate your time. I wish I could talk longer. I do. Um, but I yeah. got to run. And, um, and I look forward to potentially keeping the door open for a part two. Yeah, absolutely. Be, be happy to come back on. Thank, thanks so much for your time. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Hi, thank you so much for watching our Age Reversing Blueprint podcast. If you've made it this far, we sincerely thank you for your attention and your interest in reversing your age. If you're looking to get more information on today's topic or other podcasts that we've had, be sure to check out the show notes and be sure to check out drjoelrosen.com. Have an awesome day.